Blog Talk Radio. Presenting yourselves on this battlefield, I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army, why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them. Oh, the English are too many.
to all the reunion and they have treated us just the same as any other soldier.
he's a pragmatist. People don't realize that, and too infrequently give him that credit when it comes to issues particularly involving slavery. They say he was good to his slaves for one reason.
I just, just don't understand people. I just don't get it. Um, let's go on a little bit about Nathan Bedford Forrest here. You know, the mean old man there. You know, that big racist there. You know, oh, yeah. All right, here. Let's see. Let's talk about old general. Let's see what this commercial there says. All right. Let's see what we got here. in every regard. Forrest is a, a sort of tactical genius. Shelby Foote, the famed author of the epic trilogy The Civil War, a narrative, and perhaps best known for his appearance in Ken Burns' The Civil War, is an ardent supporter of fellow Memphian Nathan Bedford Forrest. Foote has long admired General Forrest, placing a cutout photo behind his famed writing desk. Independent researcher David DeLay has uncovered the dark and mysterious side of Forrest in his book, Extinguish the Flames of Racial Prejudice. Perhaps no man on either side of the Civil War inflicted as much damage all the while surviving four seemingly fatal wounds. Forrest killed 30 Union soldiers firsthand during the war and had 29 horses shot out from under him during the bloody conflict. Bedford Forrest's warrior persona may help explain his alleged involvement in the early days of the KKK. University of Mississippi professor Chester Quarles is the author of A History of the Ku Klux Klan. I've been interviewing Klansmen since I was a young police officer. And so my first contact with the Ku Klux occurred during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And uh, while I was plain clothes, uh, I always identified myself. They always knew who I was. And these people shared with me. And uh, I don't agree with their perspective. I go by Parker Hills. I'm a Brigadier General retired. I established Battle Focus when I retired. And Battle Focus provides corporate leadership and teamwork training. And also do military staff rides and uh, historical tours. I've been studying Forrest for a long time. I've studied many, many military leaders. Um, I, as, a, as an Army officer, people say, well, you're a Civil War nut. It just so happens I live in an area that has Civil War battlefields. If I lived up in the Northeast, I would probably be a Revolutionary War nut. My grandfather, Napoleon Nelson, went to war at age 14. He saw action initially at Shiloh. Yes, he did, he did, he did bear arms. Sub-Camp Tennessee, and he, and he served a chaplain too, which was under the generalship of General Nathan Bedford Forrest. Nathan Bedford Forrest was born in Chapel Hill, Tennessee in 1821, then moved at age 13 with his family to North Mississippi, where he would live in this house in 1845 when he married Mary Ann Montgomery. Preservationist Bill Fitch now owns the historic first home of the Forrests. We hope in the entire plantation we're preserving something for future generations. The historic Alabama city of Selma is best known for its civil war and civil rights battles. The Battle of Selma in 1865 was Forrest's last. He and his command were handily defeated. State Senator Hank Sanders has represented Selma for over two decades. Senator Sanders heeded the call to fight in the latest clash in that city, relocating a monument dedicated to the general. On the other side of the firing line was a group ready to stand with Forrest. Cecil Williamson. I am the president of Friends of Forrest, and pastor of the Crescent Hill Presbyterian Church in Selma, Alabama. So it becomes very important, just for once, 
Jungle Forest. What kind of person was he? Forrest was born to be a soldier the way John Keats was born to be a poet. General Forrest's daddy was a blacksmith, a poor trader in slaves, and in trading mules. That's the environment that General Forrest grew up in. He dropped out of school at a very early age to help support his mother and family. Forrest's uh, father will die when he is uh, a relatively young man. Um, as Forrest raises his younger brothers and sisters, then Forrest eventually will move to Hernando, Mississippi. It seems when he came back, he landed in Hernando because of his uncle who had a livery stable there, and Forrest took it over and later moved into this house and bought it in 1845 for $300 from Mr. Evans in Shelby County, Tennessee. He lived here approximately 12 years. He was married in the house. His two daughters were born in it, and the oldest one died in it. And after 12 years, he moved to Memphis and bought President Island. And through cotton trading, slave trading, uh, real estate, uh, cotton brokering, uh, he will become a millionaire and he will become involved in the city government as an alderman of Memphis, Tennessee. He had slave pens in Mississippi, both in Vicksburg and in Jackson, one in Memphis, up there on Adams Street. Uh, there were also auction houses. He tried to uh, make himself like a gentleman. He enjoyed dressing like a gentleman. Uh, he wanted to run a plantation. Everything I read about Forrest said that he was a very caring sort of slave dealer. He, as they, they say, didn't separate families. Took good care of their health, so they were well clad, things like that. Forrest had been given some criticism that I feel is unjust, and one being that, yes, he was a slave trader, but trading slaves was legal at the time he was doing it. He had a certain thing he had to deal with being a slave trader. It made him rich, made him a plantation owner in time. There was a social price to pay. People who were most fervent for slavery didn't want anything to do with slave traders. They were socially unacceptable. Another thing about Forrest that he didn't told, he would never sell in such a way that would split a man from his woman. When the war came out, he, uh, had about 47 slaves to go along with him to war. They, and, and, and they all served him loyally. And near the end of the war, he said to them, uh, you're free to go. You've done everything I've asked you to do. And to a man, they all stayed. The ones in the slave pen said that Forrest was vindictive and very cruel and scrupulous. And what my granddad had told me about, he was highly respectful of him uh, during the war. And after the war, he, he said General Forrest always did what he could to see that the, the people uh, living on his plantations in Mississippi and Tennessee were treated fairly. He, was, he, he, he referred to him as being a gentleman. So he had a gentle nature to him that most of us don't understand. He loved children, loved children. Uh, he, he would not tolerate a man to abusing a woman. So we only read about Forrest in the killing mode. But there was a different side to Forrest. Forrest was almost uxorious. She could boss him any time. He, he, he once said, uh, a woman's the only thing I'm scared of that I know won't hurt me. Uh, he felt that way about his wife. She could keep him in line. Forrest, I had made a name for him before Shiloh. Forrest uh, excelled uh, at Fort Donaldson when he, when he masterminded the, the escape from the trap, so to speak. But at Shiloh is where I guess his legend, almost superhuman legend, began.
at the uh, end of the Battle of Shiloh. First, he, he executed a very daring charge on April the 6th, 1862. And Forrest was supposed to guard Lake Creek. Of course, he crossed it, except for that scouting operation that night, seeing Buell's men come ashore and going from headquarters to headquarters trying to get somebody to do something about it. And he said, we either have to attack him tonight or get the hell out of him. And he was right, but he couldn't get to anybody who had any authority. Then on April the 8th, 1862, he was involved at Fallen Timbers. Sherman is, is executing a very half-hearted pursuit of the Confederate Army. Forrest, with around 250 cavalrymen, will charge around 2,000 Union troopers, and Forrest will charge directly into the Union lines. His men, knowing uh, that they're going into a little bit more than they can handle, pull up on their reins, and Forrest looks around and finds himself in the midst of Union lines alone. He'll hack his way out, he'll shoot his way out, uh, he will pick up a Union soldier and use him as a shield. He'll have a bullet uh, fired into his side and lodge against his spine, and yet he will escape. Sherman will later write that he's convinced that if uh, Forrest had not emptied his pistols, Sherman would not live to write his memoirs. His legend gets a good boost at, at Shiloh at Fallen Timbers. Shiloh was, um, was a battle of nearly equal forces on the first day, at least. The fact that the Northerners fought as well as they did even if there were 10,000 men hiding under the bluff, uh, they fought bravely and well. And anybody who was a child knew they had a fight on their hands. One of the tragedies of the war, to me, is what followed Shiloh. When you had 24,000 casualties in two days of fighting, really a day and a half, that was when they knew this, this, this thing was going to be horrendous. Both sides should have said, well, if we keep this up, there's not going to be any young men left in the country. And they should, at that point, have said, we've got to find some other way to settle this thing. But they didn't. Each side was more determined than ever to go ahead. Shiloh, in addition to that, was the South's real chance to uh, get over what Donald had done to them. Shiloh was their one chance to turn it back. And it's never discredited Grant. I've been told of one incident, he was vastly outnumbered. Reporter Colonel Abel Strait made the miscalculation that to use mules rather than horses, thinking they would be better in the high grounds of Alabama, and Forrest pursues with a, a much smaller number of men. And he called his men together. Boys, here's the way we're going to do it now. We've got him. All we've got to do is put him in spot. Back and forth, back and forth, whatever wagon we got. Take every regiment you've got. Back and forth, back and forth. Don't let him see you turn him around. Keep him moving. I won't put the scare on him real bad this time. He's got to give in. He's tired. He'll give. He'll give. Let's go. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he formed him up back to back with him riding in opposite directions. General, you do realize that I have an attachment ready to strike Rome at any time. Jeff, get your boys and go to the rendezvous point. Now. Yes, sir. Good God, man. How many artillery pieces do you have? I've already counted 15. 15? I reckon that's all it was able to keep up. And cause the enemy to surrender. And then Bamboozle is able straight, uh, or bluffs straight into surrendering. Straight is very upset when he finds out that Forrest has far fewer men than he, and makes the comment, this isn't fair. Forrest said, well, all is fair, and you, you fell for it, and so you, you approve there's another example of what I'm talking about, about genius, the way he could use his troops in a way to keep them fresh.
West Point graduate Braxton Bragg, who had many differences with the fiery forest. After the Battle of Chickamauga, emotions erupted. So a lot of people have criticized Yankees. 
of West Tennessee and she was pro-union. Pro At the Battle of Fort Phil, uh, these motley groups of blacks and whites that mingled together, that's how Forrest called them, motley group, odious people, they were defeating Forrest because the ones behind the artillery pieces were people that had been in the slave pens and they knew Forrest well and they were targeting him. They'd never faced black troops before until then. Forrest surrounded the fort, and as he always did, he demanded surrender, and he had attacks to use many times, even against Abel Strait, uh, that uh, if you don't surrender, I can't be responsible for what will happen to you. Uh, the fort refused to surrender. Uh, Forrest was at his men. Had to, today you can't see this because there's so many trees around it, you can't see the fields of fire. But in those days, uh, Forrest men had the high ground. They could shoot down into the fort. So there was a lot of a lot of fighting going on. There was just atrocities that went on. Uh, there's uh, all kinds of accusations at the North. The Union soldiers uh, did not uh, honor the truce. There was a flag of truce, and there were some ships on the river, Union ships, that continued to move forward. And when Forrest saw this, uh, uh, he continued to fight. At Fort Pillow, Forrest lost three horses, shot out from under him. He was badly wounded. Back, the ones in the, doing the firing of those artillery pieces thought they had killed him. Under the guise of a white flag, there was an attempt made to trick General Forrest to come out into the open at Fort Pillar. But General Forrest outfoxed them and sent somebody else. And uh, the Yankees were supposed to be using the gunboats to bombard wherever he was supposed to come out. He reacted badly. They killed a lot of men trying to surrender. Forrest himself did everything to stop it that he could. I'm convinced of that. Sherman did investigate Fort Pillow and didn't make any recommendations about proceeding against Forrest or anyone else. After the war, there were a lot of investigations. And the, the federal general said they could find nothing wrong with Forrest's conduct at Fort Pillar. It was really basically cleared. But it still makes for an extremely emotional story. And it's a story that many today who want to be forest attractors will load their ammunition into the gun and, and fire it at you. Uh, and and we're, I'm not willing to listen to a uh, rational argument that, that there are uh, excesses on both sides here. And that it's one of those things when you're, when you're firing each other again in the fog of war. Uh, and there's a lot of emotion going on. There was another uh, lieutenant, A. Wills Allen. He finally deserted uh, Forrest after the battle in Tipolo. Now, Miss Allen, uh, Lieutenant Allen, was at Fort Pillow, and he gives information you can't find in textbooks. He knew personally, firsthand, that Forrest killed two of his own soldiers at Fort Pillow because they would not participate in the carnage. He was at gunpoint forcing people to do things that they Everybody, Joseph Gibson, podcasting here on the Statement of Times, which we'll today. Okay, so we get the logistics of this. Is You're not taught through, through history. Let's move up time, the ranks here a little bit here, and let's go to World War II. Two SS Panthers versus 21 U.S. Shermans. Let's take a look at this one. Let's see what we got here. Let's see how we get this one all set up here. And uh, I like to go deep into history here. <laughs> On the 16th of December 1944, Hitler had unleashed Operation Wacht am Rhein, 
watch on the Rhine. A huge attack through the snow-covered Ardennes forest on the German border with Belgium and Luxembourg. The massive attack fell on a very weakly held sector of the American front line and came as a shock to the Allies, who thought that the Germans lacked the capabilities to launch any more offensives so late in the war. The aim of Hitler's offensive was to cross the Meuse River and capture the Allied supply port at Antwerp, cutting the American and British armies off from each other and from their supply base. But things didn't go quite as planned. American resistance was tougher than expected, causing hold-ups in the German timetable that allowed the Allies to begin rushing reinforcements into the area to contain and then crush the German bulge in their lines. As the German offensive slowed, Hitler ordered another, smaller-scale offensive further south, codenamed Operation Nordwind, or North Wind. The goal of this attack was to break through the lines of the U.S. 7th Army and French 1st Army in the upper Vosges Mountains and the Alsatian Plain and destroy them, then recapture the city of Strasbourg by the end of January 1945. Nordwind would also take some of the pressure off the Ardennes sector, forcing the Allies to redeploy troops away from the region. It was also planned that Nordwind would set the stage for Operation Zanarts, or Dentist, that would strike the rear of General Patton's U.S. Third Army that was menacing the southern flank of the Ardennes Offensive. Nordwind was launched on New Year's Eve 1944 by German Army Group G against a very thinly held 68-mile-long sector, the U.S. front lines, against the understrength units, the U.S. Seventh Army. The fighting was again fierce, and by the 15th of January, 17 understrength German divisions were fully engaged. Some of the battles were the toughest ever fought between U.S. and German soldiers, and the Germans made some gains. In appalling weather conditions, the Germans and Americans slogged it out of towns and villages. fighting was at the town of Herlesheim. On the 16th of January 1945, U.S. forces began trying to reduce the German bulge around the town. The U.S. 12th Armored Division sent in three task forces, one of which was based on the 43rd Tank Battalion. This task force, advancing on Herlesheim across open fields, was hit by fire from eight dug-in German anti-tank guns and some assault guns. The attack faltered with heavy losses, and the other two task forces were also repulsed by German small arms and mortar fire. The next day, the 12th Armored Division tried again. The U.S. 17th Armored Infantry Battalion got into Herlesheim, but was fought to a standstill by ever-growing numbers of Germans from the 553rd Volksgrenadier Division, numbering ultimately around 1,500 troops. 
By this stage, the 43rd Tank Battalion had 29 Sherman tanks remaining, and with engineers acting as improvised infantry, they attempted to support the advance of the 17th Armoured Infantry Battalion, but in the heavy and confused combat, failed to make contact. German Panzerfaust were very effective in picking off the American tanks. Heavy German reinforcements were also on the way. On the morning of the 17th of January, SS Sturmbannführer Tetsch and his Panzer Battalion from the 10th SS Panzer Division Fonsberg set off from the nearby town of Offendorf for Herlesheim. But before reaching the town, U.S. Shermans and anti-tank guns managed to knock out four Panzers and damage several more in foggy conditions. Tetsch's unit turned around and headed back to Offendorf. Battalion adjutant SS Obersturmführer Bachmann took over 3rd Company, whose commander had been wounded in the fighting. Erwin Bachmann decided to reconnoiter the outskirts of Herlesheim. Bachmann rode into the town on a motorcycle sidecar combination. He and his driver drove forward until they reached a road junction, stopped and dismounted. Moving on foot, Bachmann went alone along the road on the right, covering about 50 meters to a bend. As he reached the bend, American machine gun fire opened up. Beating a hasty retreat, Bachmann ran back to where they had left the motorcycle and grabbed a Panzerfaust anti-tank launcher from the sidecar. During his one-man reconnaissance, he had seen several Sherman tanks. Bachmann now ordered his driver to get back to German lines and bring up a platoon of Panzer tanks. Two Panzers, under the command of SS Unterschaffuhrer Mulbrat, would approach the edge of the town while Bachmann was on his one-man mission inside Herlesheim. Bachmann edged his way into the town, armed with his Panzerfaust. He had a good view over the main street. Two Shermans were sat in the street. Taking careful aim from about 30 meters, Bachmann fired the Panzerfaust, knocking out one Sherman which burst into flames. Bachmann now withdrew and jogged back to where the two panzers waited. They shut off their purring Maybach engines, and a quick orders group was assembled with Bachmann, Mulbrat, and the other panzer commander. The Germans would charge into Herlesheim and shoot up the Shermans that they had encountered, the panthers covering each other as they advanced. Panzer one under Mulbrat, with Bachmann running alongside, armed only with his pistol, drove up the road on the left while Panzer II drove up the road on the right to engage the Americans first and distract them. When Panzer I arrived at the road junction, it immediately engaged a Sherman, knocking out first one tank and then several more behind. Panzer II fired to cover him. After several hectic minutes of battle, a white flag suddenly appeared. An American officer walked towards where Bachmann was stood beside Panzer I and offered to surrender himself and his men. Six Sherman tanks stood close by, apparently undamaged. Bachmann agreed and told him to assemble his men and to pile their weapons in the street. Bachmann was astounded when 60 American soldiers came out from the shattered buildings and piled their arms as ordered. Mulbrat clambered down from his panzer and covered the 60 Americans with his MP40 machine pistol. Bachmann was even more surprised when the American officer directed him to 20 German soldiers who had been taken prisoner by the Americans earlier in the battle for the town. In a courtyard close by, Bachmann found a further six Sherman tanks, all undamaged and in running order. Thinking fast, Bachmann ordered the American tank drivers to step forward. 
Next, rearming the liberated German soldiers with captured U.S. weapons, he assigned a U.S. driver and a German guard to each Sherman and ordered the tanks driven back to Offendorf before radioing his battalion headquarters to expect a little gift. Twelve intact Sherman tanks, fully fueled and armed. The battalion also sent in a couple of trucks to take out the remaining 48 American prisoners. Ever the optimist, Bachmann now resumed his advance, moving his two Panthers four to the eastern edge of town and another furious engagement with U.S. Shermans. He knocked out two more American tanks that attempted to advance into Herlesheim. In total, the two Panthers under his command had knocked out nine Sherman tanks and captured 12. Bachmann received the Knight's Cross and the two Panther commanders, the Iron Cross First Class, for this amazing exploit. The captured Shermans were incorporated into the 10th SS Panzer Division and went with the unit when it was transferred to Stettin on the 10th of February 1945 to fight the Soviets. These Beuterpanzers, or trophy tanks, saw considerable action, and on the 25th of March 1945, the 10th SS reported 10 Shermans on strength, though only one was actually operational. All the remaining 10th Panzer Division armored vehicles were blown up by their crews on the night of the 7th to 8th of May 1945, when Germany surrendered. Erwin Bachmann survived the war and died in 2010, aged 88. As for Operation Nordwind, like the Arden Offensive, it was doomed to failure, and on the 25th of January 1945, the offensive was halted, as Hitler's attention was now fully focused on trying to stem the massive Red Army Offensive towards Berlin. Don't forget to visit my new... All right, everybody. A little history there, a little history. Might throw a little history out there. Let's see here. Let's go. It's Tiger versus Sherman. Let's see. Let's see what we got here. Military classic. Love it. Love it. Military classes to take place is between these two mighty tanks, the American Sherman and the German Tiger. These two monsters went head-to-head in the D-Day landings in some of the most brutal battles the world had ever seen. Only one tank could be the winner. Which would it be? On June 6, 1944, the Americans, British, and their allies launched the D-Day landings on the northern coast of France. They fought bravely together against the common German enemy. The Allies' objective, to gain a precious foothold into Nazi-occupied Europe. With the coast secured, more hard work lay ahead. Allied forces, led by Sherman tanks, would still have to punch their way through German defenses in France, Belgium, and Holland on their way to Berlin. In every orchard and in every hedgerow, the terrifying tiger tank was lying in wait, aiming to stop the Allied forces in their tracks. Hitler's 53rd birthday in 1942, and on the Führer's directive, 
It was to be bigger, heavier, and more deadly than any tank ever made. German Tiger weighed 56 tons, and at the time, was equipped with the largest gun to be fitted to a mass-produced tank. With its sheer size and devastating firepower, it soon took on a mythical status among enemy Allied crews. I looked upon it as something indestructible, and if it was uh, everywhere you went, you passed a wood on your flanks, say, a thousand yards away, you'd wonder what was lurking in there. Was it was a tiger which was dominant in, in crews' minds. Just, they, I'm sure people saw tigers, but they, they were there. If he sees you, you haven't got a chance, that's it. If you see him, you still have got a chance. Because of the legends surrounding this beast of a tank, Allied crews soon came to fear its ominous angular shape and looked for it everywhere. On this one occasion, we saw a square shape in the orchard, and we said automatically, that may be a tiger, uh, let's not beat about the bush, fire, and I fired, very good first shot, and there was a huge explosion of splinters, and we realized we'd shot up one of the farmers outside toilets. had been working on a design of their own. The Army needed a versatile tank, which would ultimately lead the Allied assault in the planned D-Day landings. It was a vast improvement on Allied tanks that previously had been built. It was called the M4, or as crews came to know it, the Sherman. My first impression of the Sherman, I thought was brilliant because of the maneuverability of it. And as a driver, that's such a wonderful compartment. Controls were good. And uh, I honestly, my first impression, I couldn't fault the Sherman, really. I was very impressed with it. The Sherman quickly became the tank chosen for mass production and used by all Allied forces, the Americans, Canadians, British, and eventually, even the Russians. On June 6, 1944, the Allies needed a tank for the D-Day landings. There was nothing better. The Sherman, trusted by crews and infantry alike, that was until it came into contact with the German Tiger. Of course, we didn't know then what the Germans had. Really. No, I was going to say, I don't think then I knew anything about Tiger. Well, no, they didn't tell us much about Tiger. No, they didn't, until we saw this Tiger, which had been captured. It had 20 to 25 shell marks on it. They hadn't penetrated. And then, of course, when you saw other tanks, other shells thrown in front of you, you know, so I'm utter competence about it. And I used to count the graves, because they were often then just buried behind the tank or somewhere. You'd see them two, three, five, four. Mm. There was a five, of course, they'd all gone. And that's really when my confidence began to slip a bit. Was the Allied Sherman inferior to the Tiger? And did the Tiger's prowess really live up to its fearsome reputation? A contest like this would be judged on three main factors. Firepower, armor, and mobility. Which of these two tanks would triumph in these categories? First, firepower. To create the 
Tiger, the Germans shoehorned their highly successful 88mm anti-aircraft gun into an armored body to produce an awesome tank-killing arsenal. The Sherman was not primarily designed to be a tank killer because its smaller diameter quick-loading artillery gun made it ideal for infantry support. And that's why the Allied Sherman's gun was so much smaller than the German Tiger's, as were the shells it fired. On the left is the 75mm diameter high-explosive round of the Sherman. Impressive in its own right, but compare that with the size of the 88mm armor-piercing round that the German Tiger fired. The damage caused by one of these was absolutely devastating. The Tiger's gun was larger and more powerful in every way capable of destroying an Allied Sherman at 1,500 yards. The Sherman's gun was so weak, it could not penetrate anything over 300 yards. It would have to get within a minimum of 60 yards to have a real chance of taking out a Tiger. I didn't have the exact experience, but I've spoken with people who had the experience of being within 30 to 50 yards of a Tiger, firing the main gun, of the Sherman and seeing the shot bounce off the plates of the Tiger. There was no greater example of the Tiger's superior range than at the Battle of Goodwood six weeks after the D-Day landings. Perched on a hill overlooking the advancing Allies, the German 88mm guns destroyed a staggering 400 Shermans before the Allies could even get close enough to fire a shot on target. These men were there on opposite sides. Ken Tout in an Allied Sherman, and Heinz Blydiesel in a German Tiger. Over the two days of carnage, Heinz's Tiger troop wiped out at least a dozen Shermans. 20 to 25 Shermans appeared, and we started to fire when the range was optimal, and every round hit a Sherman, and they went up in flames. Yes. In a few minutes, it took us 30 minutes for 12 Germans and the other two had bailed out, they were undamaged, and we took them back afterwards. So round one, firepower, goes to the German Tiger with its lethal 88mm gun. Just as important as firepower was the tank's armor. And the German Tiger had an advantage here, too, as military vehicle specialist Tony Lawrence explains. The armor of the Tiger varies in thickness depending on what part of the tank. The frontal armor was up to about four inches thick, the side armor less, and the turret armor less. Even so, the frontal armor was impervious to pretty well anything that the Allies could throw at it. Really, the Tiger was a mobile pillbox. To keep the Sherman lighter, the Americans used much thinner armor. In fact, almost half the thickness of the German Tigers. Experts will demonstrate the difference this makes here at an ordnance testing range in southern England. They've set up an experiment to replicate the effects of a direct hit from a German 88mm round on the two-inch thick side armor plating of an Allied Sherman tank. The real measure of strength will be the potential damage to the crew inside, represented by these targets. High-speed video cameras will record the impact and show how well the armor stands up to the modern equivalent of the Tiger's deadly firepower. 
effects are devastating. The Allied Sherman's armor plating is too thin to withstand the raw firepower of a round fired from a gun like the German Tiger's 88. It has penetrated the armor, sliced right through the crew, and exited the other side. For a tank crew during the Second World War, the chances of surviving an impact like this were incredibly slim. We were uh, advancing through an orchard, but when we got to the edge of the orchard, I heard it, a, a gun was firing, which sounded like an 88, and I looked across about sort of 200 yards, and I could see the gun, suddenly the camouflage came off it a bit, and they were firing someone else's tank, possibly Nobby's or the other mm. one next to it. Mm. I sort of came a bit out of the trees, and then I could see that the gun was beginning to swim around the waters. And of course, eventually, it was facing directly at our tank. We started looking down the muzzle. And the next minute it fired, and it struck our tank just above the right track. As it entered the tank, first thing I noticed was the shaft of light as it had punched through. And it was an almighty bang, as you may imagine. That was about, I suppose, this much from me, about a yard across the tank, and only about a foot from the co-driver. It struck the ammunition bin, went white hot, and then it shot out underneath and broke the track. We all got out, and we all survived. Extremely lucky. <laughs> Must have been our lucky day. Brian only survived because the Allied Sherman's armor was so thin the German shell passed through the tank's wall and straight out the other side without touching the crew. Few Allied soldiers were as lucky, however. Some who lived to tell the tale of their battle with a tiger were faced with a grisly task, recovering the remains of other Allied Sherman crew. Wally Tarrant remembers. The biggest part was down in the air. We lost four tanks in one street. I saw I'll come down because I knew them all, you know. And we went into the tank to try and see if we could find anybody we knew. And that was terrible, you know. We found a pair of shoes and is that trapped in water? I thought, that's his, he had big feet. I thought, that must be him, you know. And then the driver I knew and I thought, that's the driver. He said, yeah, but we can't be sure of it. Find his tag, you know. And a lot of them were just called missing. A German Tiger taking a direct hit from a Sherman round produced very different results. For German crews, the Tiger's thick armor made it a safe place to be. When you were hit, let's say by a Sherman, you thought uh, there was a lightning in your tank for a few seconds, except that sometimes I was thrown back a little bit. But afterwards, uh, it was as if nothing had happened. So not only did the German Tiger surpass the Allied Sherman in terms of firepower, its armor appeared to be resistant to anything the Allies could fire at it. But in time, all that was changed. In the weeks after the D-Day landings, Allied Sherman tanks had been decimated by the devastating firepower of the German Tiger tank force. Stories 
of Sherman's penetrating the Tiger's thick armor with their tiny 75-millimeter guns were few and far between. That was until a British innovation changed the Sherman into a tank that could challenge the Tiger head-on. The Firefly. The Firefly was a uh, last-minute desperate attempt to put a really decent gun into the Sherman tank. And the British had available the 17-pounder, which was more or less equivalent to the Tiger's 88mm. Uh, they tried to put it into the Sherman, found it wouldn't fit. And in the end, ingeniously, they got it fitted into the turret by doing a 90 degrees twist. And they were able to insert it into the rather small turret of the Sherman. This is the Sherman as it was originally developed with a 75mm gun. This is the Sherman Firefly with a 17-pounder anti-tank gun. The pea shooter the tank killer. That ought to kill us hang to think about. But it was too little, too late. The Allied Sherman Firefly, even with its superior artillery, was never produced in mass quantities, primarily because the Americans were reluctant to put a foreign gun on their tanks. Rounds one and two, firepower and armor, belong to the German Tiger tank. Will the Sherman turn the tables when it comes to mobility? is quite a hairy experience. In Sherman, you could go along any normal metal road, cross-country. The Tigers were much, much slower, but also, of course, their weight told against them. At 56 tons, it's fine going along nice, flat, dry ground. Once you start getting into mud, they're going to sink. Once you start going over small bridges, the bridges are going to crumble. The Sherman was perhaps much better, much faster. Our maneuverability was uh, really inadequate, and the engine was uh, too slow. And it wasn't just on the move that the Allied Sherman was faster than the German Tiger. Its turret could turn more rapidly, an advantage that could mean the difference between life and death. If you compare it with the Sherman, I would say the Sherman is, was much better. It took us three to five minutes turning the turret round by hand, and perhaps uh, two minutes or one minute and a half by engine. So although inferior in terms of firepower and armor, the Allied Sherman was vastly superior to the German Tiger when it came to mobility. Not only did the Sherman win this round, it also had something else, something colossal on its side, the full weight of the American automobile industry. And this car held the key to the eventual dominance of the Sherman over the German Tiger on the battlefield. Here in the Detroit tank arsenal, we forge the armaments of victory. Back in the U.S., everyone was working together to help the Allied war effort in Europe. Not only were the public playing their part, 
But in this golden age of cooperation, the big three car manufacturers, General Motors, Chrysler, and Ford, joined forces to take control of Sherman tank production. As a result, new Shermans rolled off the assembly lines using components taken directly from the automobile industry. For example, this Ford Pilot's V8 engine was also fitted to some Sherman tanks. This flexibility in construction, simple design, and massive manufacturing backup meant that in Normandy, destroyed Allied Shermans could be replaced in 36 hours. When I was knocked out, I went straight back. They gave me a Sherman straight away to get back up. Our tank was an older one than the one we'd lost, and uh, it had been uh, belonged to a squadron leader, a major, who'd had his head blown off in there, and they cleaned it all up and disinfected it, and that was pretty good. And uh, they put us in that, and off we went. The Germans didn't have that kind of industrial backing. In fact, it could be argued that one of Hitler's greatest mistakes was to have commissioned such an enormous and complicated machine like the Tiger, when much simpler tanks could have been built in greater numbers. For every one Tiger coming off the production line, the Germans could have afforded to build three of their smaller but lethal Panzer Mark IVs. They lost the plot of it. And this is the problem with all of those. They were still producing grandiose products right up to 1945, when they should have just concentrated on some of their proven successes and just concentrating, getting those out as quickly as possible. The German Tiger was a complex, over-engineered machine, which shared few common parts with any other German tank. It took a long time to make, was less reliable, and had sparse ground assistance when it needed repair. In the field of combat, a minor fault could disable the Tiger. And unlike the Allied Sherman, a dead Tiger could not be replaced easily. We had a lot of engine trouble in my Lecor after 100 yards. It was already broken down, so we had to wait for people to get it running again, who never came, by the way. The, the war ended before they actually arrived. Now a reconstruction of a typical tank battle will demonstrate how the Allied military strategists used the Sherman's superior numbers to overrun the defending German Tigers and to beat a path through Europe and eventually to victory over the Nazis. Imagine a little scenario in Normandy. We have a Tiger tank here, sitting up in a hedgerow, hidden from the Allies. We have a troop of four Shermans crossing a field. The first one is charged to be turning. They'll be on the lookout for anything suspicious. The Tiger will take him out straight away with one shot. The second Sherman, he realizes an enemy gun or something in the hedgerow. He will probably try and aim a shot towards the hedgerow, roughly where he thinks whatever it is might be. But by then the Tiger has reloaded and has taken this one out. The third tank, he will have seen the Tiger by now. He will try and use his other tanks as shield. He will come round. He might be able to get a shot off. And he will make a beeline for a sunken ravine over on the other side. But by then the Tiger will have reloaded. He will have gone. In the meantime, the fourth member of the troop, seeing what's happening, 
he will know the only vulnerable spot on the tiger is the rear. He will try and go round to the rear of the tank and he will try and take out the tiger from the rear. Sherman out of four surviving. And just as the Shermans were sacrificed for the Allied war effort, so too were their crews. I felt very expendable, especially when we landed in Normandy. And when you see so many casualties in Normandy, and every day we were having casualties, you did feel there's my number next, you know. Sheer numbers. All right, we know the ending, of course. All right, Joseph Gibson podcasting, understanding the times in which we live today. Hope everybody's doing all right here tonight, or whoever listens in the downloads in the morning or throughout the week. I think we're going to get ready to wrap it up here, but tomorrow night we'll be concentrating more on uh, the events of today. Got a lot going on. Scientists' shows, vaccine effects, and autopsies. Don't believe it? See it for yourself. We're going to play that video for you tomorrow night. Um, a lot of stuff going on out there. I when they, they this, uh, They're saying this is... Uh, we've been talking about this for months. You know, there's a lot of information out there uh, about this vaccine. Dangerous. Very dangerous. But uh, just don't take it. All right, everybody, we're going to wrap it up here tonight. Understand the times in which we live today. Blogtalkradio.com forward slash Joseph Gibson.
And that's why they call me Bad. 